You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Well, Colonel Austin, uh, thanks very much for sitting down and making time uh, to talk to us for this episode of The Spear. Um, you're in right now DMI-6, uh, the director of the Department of Military Instruction here at West Point. Um, I wonder if you can just briefly kind of run through uh, your your Army career a little bit. Yeah, I started my enlisted career in, in the 1st Ranger Battalion. I joined the Army enlisted to grow up and see the world, and uh, the 1st Ranger Battalion afforded me that opportunity in spades. I showed up in the 1st Ranger Battalion on 25 October 1983. That's the same day the battalion had just jumped into Grenada. So unbeknownst to me, they were gone, and uh, we began our training, Ranger Indoctrination Program, with a bunch of angry NCOs that were set on preparing us for combat in case we had to move forward. But that point then was matured throughout uh, the next several years with the 1st Ranger Battalion. All the NCOs had been in Grenada. They understood the importance of training for combat and having their young, young Rangers best prepared for that eventuality and being prepared on short notice. I spent approximately three years there and then moved to a support brigade as I prepared to transition out of the Army into the National Guard and uh, pursue a commission. I went into the Nebraska National Guard and it was a LRSD, a long-range surveillance unit, so they were on jump status. So we'd go to school throughout the week. Friday night we'd jump out of an airplane, train real hard for a couple of days, and come back to school. Um, I was commissioned approximately 27 months after getting off active duty and entered the active service regular army about two weeks after after getting commissioned. I was slated to go to 101st, and I showed up in my unit in 101st Bravo Company 3187 on 1 August 1990. Most of us know Iraq invaded Kuwait on 2 August 1990. We were alerted to go to Saudi Arabia on 11 August, and on 11 September we went wheels up. So the two t first units that I showed up in as enlisted and as a commission officer, as a platoon leader, um, kind of blew out the door in very short notice. And that set how I looked at the Army and how I looked at training throughout my career. And you go on to um, 
uh, you know, spend uh, quite a bit of time in, in our, during our later conflicts as well, including battalion command time in, uh, in Afghanistan. And I think we're going to try to set up a subsequent conversation where we talk about that because I think there's just a, a lot of really interesting things that can be gleaned from the time that you spent in battalion command uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, this one is going to be this episode is going to be uh, a first for us because we're going to talk about that Desert Shield and Desert Storm. As you mentioned, your career, especially your early career, corresponded um, uh, very closely with some big kind of inflection points uh, in the history of the Army uh, in in the 80s and 90s. One of them being your first job was as a platoon leader uh, with the 101st, who was shortly after you you shortly after you arrived was mobilized sent to Saudi Arabia and I understand uh, had the mission of a an air assault into Iraq um, can you talk a little bit about that and and kind of what that process was like as you get the order to move in and I think you said August September time frame through January when um, when uh, when that air assault happened yeah, so it was interesting. Uh, we showed up in Saudi Arabia, and of course, there was a lot of diplomacy going on at that time. Um, as the military built the coalition, um, the diplomats were also building the coalition, but setting the conditions for Desert Storm if that was required. At platoon le leader level, that was very transparent um, to us, and we lived in a large tent city for a week or so, and then we would move out to the desert, live under camo nets, out of rucksacks, and we're largely left to our own devices to train with very few resources, but all the time that, that we needed. Um, we did not know what the eventual timeline was, so we continued to prepare and refine on our individual and collective skill tasks was um, this mainly platoon training company level training or or above yeah it was really all platoon training until uh, we got a battalion order in january when desert storm was was in staring us in the face we got a, a battalion order um we didn't get a company order platoon leaders got together put that platoon or a company order together and then we, again, focused on the tasks that we believed we were going to have to do when we are assaulted into Iraq. And what were some of those tasks? We, we knew we were going to block Highway 8, at that time south of El Qadir, kind of southwest of El Qadir, along Highway 8. So we'd have to set up some form of, of defense when we got into country. And that would be uh, platoon defense linked into company defense linked into a battalion defense. Um, we air assaulted in approximately 175 kilometers, hit an HLZ where we downloaded our, our Humvees, and then we drove um, 30 or 40 clicks into Highway 8. And, um, you know, it was very crappy weather, I remember, and uh, in days when we only had a couple of GPSs and and, uh, and really rudimentary nods, but we were able to get where we needed to be. How big was the air assault force? It, it was a battalion-sized air assault, so I would imagine it was close to 600 people that we put in. And this is, um, I mean, only several months after you've taken over a platoon. Um, what are you thinking at that moment as you're loading up and you're getting ready to go? Well, what's running through your mind? Uh, you know, are you afraid? Are you nervous? Are you... You know, amped up. What what's going on? Yeah, I, I was exceptionally thankful for the the months of training time that we had. I thought we had planned and and executed a very very good 
train-up plan. Um, there was little more we could do but continue to refine um, our competence in the tasks that we selected. Um, in interestingly, at some point, probably in November, we were having a probably a little dip in morale. Again, we were living under camo nets, out of rucksacks, eating MREs for three meals a day, drinking water out of cans, getting resupplied every few days with the same. And um, But I could tell the soldiers that the morale was down a little bit. So in a platoon meeting, I asked, told everybody we'd take a, a day of no training, but I wanted everybody to write a week-long training schedule. And in the course of that, that evening then, I put together what I considered kind of a platoon mission essential task list or critical task list. And what I learned from that experiment is I had some leaders who thought we were fully trained and should now just rest up. And I had some soldiers that thought we needed to do some, some additional training on things like land navigation, call for fire, medical tasks. And I was pretty impressed with that. But the overall... Uh, issue that came out is the soldiers weren't upset about training. They were upset that they didn't have time to do maintenance and write letters home during daylight because the days were very short at that time. We were training pretty hard during the day. We'd go into the night and the soldiers couldn't do weapons maintenance to their standard, which was a great thing to discover, nor could they write, write letters home. And believe it or not, small things like light bulbs for a flashlight flashlights were in short demand as we burned through those. So it was a good lesson learned going forward in my career that uh, if there's an issue in a platoon, maybe you ought to ask your platoon what the issue is. And undoubtedly, um, soldiers can characterize that probably better than many of the leaders. As you're going through the planning process for this air assault, um, Right, and you've got situation, mission, and once you get to enemy, what are you, what are you ex expecting uh, to be on the ground? You know, the situation is is very fluid, obviously, and you're expecting it to be. But um, are there enemy forces in the area that you know of? Yeah, we we had uh, temp had templated uh, enemy forces in the area, but we knew they had had greatly dispersed. Many of them had abandoned their positions. Our uh, battalion was uh, w was very aggressive in the sense that they inserted our scout platoon leaders, our scout platoon on motorcycles, and they were to recon our route from that HLZ up to Highway 8. Very brave men um, went forward and, and plotted the route, but a number of the motorcycles broke down, so they had to keep continue to walk. But we had a fairly decent picture that there was no organized resistance, no defense that we were going to have to breach through as we made it up to Highway 8. Um, the route did not get marked as we uh, had planned for, but again, just having that intel read from our scout platoon was uh, very beneficial to the task force. So once you, you get in country, um you established this blocking position. Um, you had sent me for, for listeners, uh, a document that I think is fascinating and, um, and also kind of fascinating that you ever took the time to write it. Uh, a few years after Desert Storm, you're a captain, um, I believe you said at the career course, where you kind of detailed out a lot of the operational details and then along with some lessons learned. Um, once you get then into this blocking position, what, what comes next? What are the sorts of missions that your platoon is given? 
Yeah, so, so largely we established that defense. We had um, personnel Iraqis coming out of the town of Al-Qadir um, trying to surrender themselves. And largely, if we didn't have military-age males with weapons um, but families, we would try to coordinate humanitarian assistance, which was very hard to get into the area at that time. It had to come in to, by, by helicopter, but we would largely send them back in, into the town. Military-age males were, were detained, and we could backhaul them when the helicopters um, did come forward. None of the people were really a threat to us that, that came from Al-Qadir. But at one point, on very short notice, we had a helicopter mechanical issue go down in the town of Al-Qadir. My platoon was put into PZ posture, and within minutes, we were picked up with aircraft, went into town, and uh, secured that inside of a park. And it was just a lesson, unfortunately, we continue to, to relearn. And that is, we went in without rucksacks. We knew it was going to be a short mission. We backhauled the pilots. We secured the aircraft uh, and anticipated a CH-47 coming in and sling-loading out the AH-1 Cobra at the time. Well, the aircraft did leave. The pilots did. But then we got word that we would be remaining on the ground. And I radioed my company commander, told him, hey, we'd flown without rucksacks. We have no nods. We have no equipment um, to, to put in a defense here, um, e even a hasty defense. So they ended up backhauling us. Good lesson learned, conducted an AAR, uh, immediately got rucksacks prepared for uh, another eventuality, whatever that might be. And just a couple days later, we did get called to go back into PZ posture on short notice and go in on an F-16 um, that had the pilot had ejected out of it crashed and we had to go ensure that the components the sensitive components were destroyed but again learning organization we went in much better prepared but it's also something in the days before Mogadishu that I was able to learn that and carry forward into uh, into the organizations that I that I went into and um, it's unfortunate we weren't able to necessarily or didn't understand how to disseminate that lesson to other formations in the Army. And sometimes those lessons are kept inside of an organization or in, in a small distribution, and uh, other soldiers end, their, end up paying for the same lessons over and over. I think one of the uh, defining features on uh, our, the most recent battlefields in Iraq and Afghanistan has been civilians on the battlefield. Um, which in a in a stability operations in a counterinsurgency context, you know, trying to kind of distinguish between combatants and non-combatants is a difficult thing. It sounds like, you know, that wasn't as much of an issue uh, when you when you went in in '91. Um, but how much, you know, when how much does that add to, you know, the chaos of the moment when you've got masses of people that are trying to surrender and, you know, for the most part, you think they're not. You know they're not a threat, but it's still something you need to kind of think about. And then when you when you get into Al Qadir, for instance, you said um, if it's you know generally friendly, um, that's one thing. But if it's not, then not having your rocks, not having nods, not having all these things really puts you at a disadvantage. How much, um, how much, how prepared were you for civilians on the battlefield? Do you think? 
Yeah, when I look back now, compared to the training that we've had over the years, I mean, we were completely unprepared. We, we, did, we did very, very little to prepare to engage with civilians, to non-kinetically engage with the population. Um, when we went into Al-Qadir, I, di- I didn't have an interpreter. I had no one that spoke Arabic. Um, I asked the crowd that was forming if somebody did speak English. And I remember a, a, a veterinarian, and I, I knew because I kept talking, I talked to him for quite some time, came up. He said he went to school in America, he spoke English, um, and he would help keep the crowd away. And I, I told him I appreciated it. Just please have the, the crowd go back. And I knew nightfall was approaching. I said, and please tell everybody to stay away because I will have to protect my force and potentially use force if people approach us at night. Um, and he did a great job of doing that, but fortunately we were able to extricate ourselves from the, the, the small park in El Qadir um, before nightfall. But again, at that time, had a very short window to get, prepare for combat, and we focused largely on our kinetic engagement. We did know what the Iraqis looked like. We did have a, a Republican Guard captain who had been wounded came through our, our ranks, and we, we policed him up. Again, I remember seeing he was the first wounded individual I saw, and I remember having a lot of respect for him. He just looked like a warrior. He was very serious, um, didn't perceive him as, as necessarily a threat at that point in time at all, but uh, I could tell he was, he was another very well-trained warrior trying to do what he was supposed to be doing. How aware were you... Um in these initial days and weeks, I guess, once you got into the country, how aware were you of what your platoon and what your battalion's role was in the context of, of, of the broader fight? Were you aware of what was going on, uh, you know, further south, further east, um, up toward Baghdad? Did you, was, that, was that even possible to know that? And was it important to know that? Yeah, at, at platoon level, I, I understood what the brigade, I mean, which was two, three levels up at the time. So I understood what our company and what our battalion and the brigade's role was um, very well. My platoon understood that. Um, far as the bigger picture, we didn't have real good situational awareness of that. You know, we were very cognizant that mech forces were, were going through Kuwait. Um, I don't recall knowing about the, the big Hail Mary, and we were part of that. We just knew where we were going, and then only after we recovered from Iraq did we know we were part of the big left hook. Um, and uh, But I felt I had situational awareness of at least what I needed to, to, to do my part within the company and battalion, and even knew what the brigade was doing. And in fact, um, at the time, Colonel Clark, our uh, brigade commander, Set, set a lot of examples, positive examples, for how I opted to lead into the future. He led the air assault in and was was present. We saw him a couple of times. It was called Battle Position Waco. And um, it, it, he, he just really brought a sense of calm and confidence to all the paratroopers who saw him on that air assault. Uh, it, it strikes me that, you know, this document that, that you wrote a few years later as a captain, um, kind of reflecting on and, and on some of the operational details, but also on some of the lessons learned. It strikes me in reading it that 
um, you know, the operational aspects would be very different from somebody who wrote about Grenada, uh, you know, with the Ranger Battalion that you signed into the day that they um, got to Grenada or somebody who wrote about uh, Mogadishu, which is what, two years, two and a half years later, um, or our subsequent, um, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom and, and Enduring Freedom. But the, some of the lessons learned feel almost timeless. Mm-hmm. Um, they're lessons that you could learn in a conventional fight against, you know, at the time Iraq had what the fifth largest military in the um, in the world, or fifth spent the had the fifth largest defense budget in the world, um, or fighting against you know Taliban fighters that are armed with little more than small arms. Um, what are some of the lessons that uh, that as you kind of put this together? back then and still when you kind of reflect back on it which of the ones do you think are truly the most timeless yeah i i think the the idea that when we train when we prepare the units that are the best at the basics understand standards and discipline understand their equipment so they can really shoot move communicate and treat casualties lead under fire are the units that can flex to any part of the globe. As you said, maybe we talk about battalion command later, but for months I was planning with my battalion to go to Iraq. And we were told while we were at Grafenvir in Germany that, no, you're not going to Iraq now, you're going to go to Afghanistan. And after my battalion command tour, people would ask, so how did that change your training plan? I said it didn't change my training plan. You know, we continued to work on the basics, get exceptionally good at, at live fire, integration of fires, treating casualties, leading in combat. And I think that knowing your equipment, maintaining your equipment, cross-training on the equipment within the element that you're in, um, being able to employ that equipment in arduous conditions, um, being able to employ it in the dark and and confidently change out leaders within an organization is, is timeless. And uh, I've written about that in a number of different times. The Army subsequently has written about, or the, the Rangers have established the Big Five or the Big Six, where they emphasize every organization having some element you know, of, of tough, toughness, medical proficiency, marksmanship, be good at drills, um, be good at like mobility, whether that's land nav, working on a certain vehicle platform, and then many organizations add discipline and standards. I know the Rangers think that's inherent, believe that's inherent. Um, some units add discipline and standards to make it big six or big five. But, you know, to your question about just understanding the basics, doing the basics well, repetitively, re- repeatedly, and then having the leadership be able to be be adaptable to the situation is is pretty timeless. Did you feel prepared as a platoon leader uh, for the mission when you when you jumped in? Yeah, I, I I absolutely did. And cadets asked, you know, cadets have asked me in this job, you know, please tell us about something you didn't feel prepared for, and either confidently or naively, I say, I don't. The army has not put me in a situation that I honestly did not feel prepared for. And it didn't mean I had the answer to all the tests, but I did at least have the knowledge and agility to adapt to whatever situation I've been faced with. And um, I think that goes to, 
you know, our three pillars. We've got the cadets here in the institution. They stay in the institution through their basic officer leader course. They go to their organization, have organizational learning. And then that big component of self-study, the third pillar of, of development, self-study, is important. And again, by being somewhat traumatized as a young private and then as a second lieutenant, by units going out the door shortly after arriving um, or while arriving, has made me believe that we've got to invest our time wisely and uh, spend some time, spend some time with your family, spend some time um, on yourself, but waste no time. And uh, if people do that, I think they'll be fairly prepared for anything the Army can throw at them. Did your time, you were, you were prior enlisted, do you think that that changed um, the approach that you took to leadership at the platoon level? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Um, I was raised by great non-commissioned officers, um, inspired by great officers in that organization. And I felt confident going into my first unit. But I will tell you, with seven years of combined infantry experience of some flavor before showing up for my first day being a platoon leader, still on that night, I went home after my first day's work and thought maybe I made a mistake because the first lieutenants were so smart, I didn't think I'd ever be able to catch up with them. But again, that energized me to self-study and work hard. And in short order, I think I did you know, catch up and get that knowledge um, that I needed. But uh, in that paper I wrote, uh, I talk about being the arms room officer on the first day, one August 1990, and going into the arms room, and every weapon was visibly dirty. Nods had condensation on them. At the time, dragon bottles and batteries were empty, and it stuck out to me because I had learned as a young ranger that rifle companies rotate around rifles, and that's the first thing you do is care for your equipment before you put it in. And for whatever circumstances, and it's not accusatory, but the unit that I went into had come in from the field, put their weapons in the arms room, had a four-day weekend, and likely had a plan to take them out. Short conversation with the first sergeant and the arms room officer. We took the weapons out, got them clean to standard. But again, it's a it's a something I had to deal with on day one and was confident enough to deal with because I had um, experience. And I think I had an ability to talk to non-commissioned officers, but I also held them to high standard because they had been holding me to high standard for quite some time. Is there anything then, um, I guess to kind of maybe wrap up, kind of circling back to um, that period of September to January when you're training in the desert, and then from January onward after you jump in, or, uh, or air assault into, into Iraq. Is there anything from those months that has really stuck with you and has kind of informed um, the way you think about the Army, the way you think about training and preparation and, and, and the mission at hand? Yeah, I think uh, what, what stuck with me, and as you can see on my wall, I have a picture of, of the platoon I was with then. Um, what stuck with me is how much my soldiers and NCOs regardless of their experience, regardless of where they come from, can teach me about my job. All I have to do is ask the questions, and they will have great ideas, um, solutions to problems. You know, it's kind of the whole is smarter than the individual. And I think our leaders 
that understand that their team probably has the answer to any complex problem they face, generally find, find a solution, a workable solution. And I think that's something I've tried to do over the years is know my soldiers. I had the opportunity to learn a lot about each one of them um, over the seven months we were in Desert Shield. And I've tried to carry that, that through of walking around, getting to know the soldiers, and what, what's their interest, and what, what can they contribute, and what do they know that I don't know, and what would they change if they were in my position? What should I be trying to change now that I'm in this position, um, or better? And it's not change for change, but change to better the organization. And the thing I've found is that the vast majority of soldiers, given the opportunity to better the unit, have very, very, very good ideas of how to do that. They want to be combat effective. Um, they want to train hard, um, but sometimes we just need to ask them what, what that entails. Well, sir, thanks so much for, for like I said, for making some time and, and uh, sharing a little bit about your experiences and, and, uh, and some of the lessons learned. It's been, it's been a privilege. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.